Welcome to the Valley Point Podcast. Valley Point Church is a faith community located in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania. Our mission is pointing people to real relationships and real significance. Enjoy and thanks for listening. Good morning, church. It is an honor to be here with you this morning. Um, I bring you greetings from the Wayne Presbyterian Church and also from our sister organization in Southwest Philadelphia called The Commonplace. I'm going to start off by reading Psalm 30, verses 4 through 12, and then I'll pray. And then just we'll be open to what the Lord does here this morning. Amen? I'm expecting amen because I'm not at the Presbyterian Church. Amen? (laughs) Amen. Okay. Thank you. (laughs) Listen now for the word of the Lord. Psalm 30, verses 4 through 12. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his faithful ones, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may linger for the night, but joy comes in the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved by your favor, O Lord. You have established me as a strong mountain. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cried, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned my mourning into dancing. You've taken off my sackcloth and clothed me with joy so that my soul may praise you and not be silent. Where I come from, we say, this is the word of the Lord. And the people say, thanks be to God. Oh, I got some folks in the building. <laughs> Friends, please pray with me. Jesus Christ, son of the living God. Jesus Christ, son of the living God. Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on us. Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on us. Open our hearts and our minds to the truth and the power of your holy word. And now may the words in my mouth and the meditation on all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength, our hope, our love, and our redeemer. Amen. So there are a few things that you could assume by looking at me. Clearly, I'm a woman of color, African-American. Thank you very much. Um, Based on my bio, it's clear that I work at a predominantly white and affluent church. And by predominantly, it's me and Miss Kathy, who works in the kitchen, and my son, who represent the black constituency at Wayne Presbyterian Church, (laughs) clearly. Um, I spend a lot of time between urban and suburban contexts. You can't tell, but I am a lightly tattooed pastor with a small nose ring and a little bit of purple in her hair. There are clearly some obvious things that you can tell by looking at me. 
What you would not know by looking at me is that I have a 42-year-old husband who is quietly dying in a nursing home. There are a lot of things that I could talk about today. I could talk about ministry. I could talk about urban and suburban partnerships. I could talk about being female in a male-dominated church society. I could talk about what it means to be black in today's world. But there is something that needs to be said about how we make sense of pain. But moreover, how we make sense of having joy in the midst of sorrow. And so what I want to talk to you about this morning is not stuff that I've learned in seminary or on youth retreats or on conferences. I want to talk about how to maintain joy when life throws you a curveball and how to see the beauty of God in the midst of brokenness. I like to share my story, our story, our family story, through the perspective of, again, being a pastor who's a caregiver to a dying man and feel like the Lord gave me Psalm 30 as a backdrop. So we're going to kind of go through these verses and we'll just unpack this together. Amen. I love that. (laughs) Sing praises to the Lord. O you, his faithful ones and give thanks to his holy name for his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. My husband's name is Carl. And my life together with Carl has been filled with so many praise-filled moments and reasons for Thanksgiving. Back in 1998, we met on the campus of Temple University. We were both jazz majors. I was a jazz vocal performance major, and Carl studied jazz, guitar, and yes, we made music together, (laughs) literally. Carl and I went from being friends, we were like, you know, cool Christian kids on campus, and we talk about God and all that other cool stuff, Um, and then we went from friends to seriously dating. We learned that we had a deep love for God. We were also both a little sarcastic and snarky, which was kind of cool, but we also cared about making a difference in this world and pleasing God in the process. Between my junior and senior year of college, my father died rather quickly from lung cancer. Carl, a solid boyfriend of only nine months, was right there by my side. My family knew that he was a special guy. Upon my father's death, I took a week off from classes to mourn and to be with my family. And it was in the spring of 1998, not too long after that death, that my friends were working at a place called Wayne Presbyterian Church at the time. This young couple said to me, Aisha, we're going on this mission trip to Jackson, Mississippi. There's this guy there named John Perkins who does racial reconciliation at a place called Voice of Calvary Ministries. They're like, we really need you to go on this trip. I said, hmm, racial reconciliation for a group of white kids in the suburbs. I was like, y'all don't got no black folk to go on this trip. They're like, you're totally right. We have no one. So I said, all right, all right. I'll help you out. I'll go. So as we're preparing for this trip, the other thing that was happening is my friends were departing to go to seminary, and then there was a hole in the staffing at Wayne Prez that they needed someone to do middle school youth ministry. Now me a black girl who grew up as a conservative Baptist and loved Philly and just had no even concept of what it would mean to do um, youth ministry to kids in the suburbs, let alone Presbyterian. 
thing. God kind of did God's own thing and kind of opened the door in that way. So as God would have it, I interviewed at Wayne Presbyterian Church, and they offered me the job. Not long after, I started to realize that my commute from Philly to Wayne on the train was not going to work. So as I'm commuting back and forth, my boss and my youth pastor at the time told me that I needed to leave Philadelphia and move out to the suburb. If anybody has ever grown up with a one in their zip code, it's a little jarring for us, for us Philadelphians. We live, we hold fast to the one. And so I just couldn't even, I mean, even Wayne is 19087. I said, the zero, where's my one? So it was, just, it, was, it was a little difficult for me. So one of the church members opened up their home and they let me live with them while Carl and I were still planning our wedding. I'll never forget this night. Carl had all of my possessions jam-packed into his dad's little car. And so we start driving out to Wayne, PA, and he had all of my stuff in it. And I start to get this panic, like maybe I've said yes to the wrong thing, or maybe this isn't really where I belong. And we're sitting outside of the home, and, and the family that we live with, I kid you not, were the Whitemans. You get, we can laugh at that, all right? It's, I'm like, of all the families, I live with the white men's. I'm like, this is just, I can't, this is crazy. So I'm sitting there in the car, and the tears began to flow. And I'm like, Carl, I, I can't do this. I, I, I can't live out here. What was I thinking? And without skipping a beat, Carl said, it's too late now. You better get out this car and go head on. So I got out of the car. And I went ahead on and living out in Wayne and doing youth ministry for four years was one of the most beautiful things to happen in my life. And so Wayne Prez, Carl and I, Carl grew up Pentecostal, I grew up Baptist and we became Presbyterians together. And so Wayne became our church church home as Presbyterians. So we got married in 2000. And so we served together. We made more music together. Carl, during um, some of our mission trips, we worked um, at a place called Urban Promise in Camden, New Jersey. And during one of our service days, Carl's working with kids and he realized that just being a freelance musician wasn't going to be enough and that God was calling him to something greater. So he found his second calling as a teacher and went back to graduate school. I, too, answered the call to going into full-time ministry. I was taking classes at Palmer Seminary and then transferred to Princeton. God's favor and love was all around us. We had so much to be thankful for, living for God, serving the world, loving each other, making music, put out a CD together. I mean, life was really, really good. As I was graduating from Princeton Seminary, we were blessed. I was pregnant. In my, I was in my first trimester at graduation. And so we were blessed to have one son, Ellington, who you will see walking around here with a little snarky PK attitude. But, you know, just give him a little head nod when you, when you see him. And all my days of seminary, from my classes at Palmer and to my classes at Princeton, um, they prepared us, right, as pastors, to take care of you all. They prepared us to take care of the parishioners. We talked about pastoral care classes and counseling and how to deal with death and dying and conflict and marital issues. I cannot tell you a time that anyone said to me in seminary, 
Aisha, this pain and suffering may wind up on your back doorstep. Not once did I hear, be prepared for these things to happen in your life. Be prepared for things to happen beyond your control. Not one time in my theological education did I hear, don't be surprised by the thorn in your flesh or the heartache or the tragedy that may happen in your own home. I learned a lot in school, but there are some things that school cannot teach you. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy cometh in the morning. Sometimes this weeping joy, weeping joy, weeping joy cycle can last for quite some time. When our son was on the verge of turning one, I got a phone call that would haunt me and change my life. We were living in the northeast section of Philadelphia, and I was serving as a children's director in South Jersey. It was 2006, so the phone technology was not at its best. I think I had a Palm Pilot, and I thought I was on the cutting edge of everything. It was one night, we had children's ministry, we had kid club, kids club, and you know, jumping around with the kids, and family dinner, and I get back to my office, and I have 13 missed messages from Carl. My Palm Pilot was buzzing. I'm sitting there, at, as I'm sitting at my desk, I get a phone call from my babysitter on the cellular, and then my mother-in-law is called, they're calling me at the same time. And they're telling me that Carl's in the hospital because he had a fall. My babysitter says, listen, I can keep Ellington overnight, and I'm just in shock trying to save face in front of the parishioners and the children who are going by my office. Carl had fallen. He walked about a mile to his parents' house. He couldn't remember the day. He didn't know where we lived, and he was being evaluated at the local hospital near my in-laws. It was like one big nightmare unfolding. Weeping may endure for a night, but sometimes a night can feel like a really long time. It was in the spring of 2007 that we discovered that Carl had a rare neurological condition. They call it olivopontocerebellar atrophy. Kind of looks a little like MS or maybe a little like Lou Gehrig's disease in some way. Your body deteriorates. Carl had been diagnosed legally blind when we were in college and we were finding out now in this 2007 that that was all a part of the disease and the illness. I remember the doctor looking at the paperwork and I could tell he hadn't pregame before we got into the office. And so he's looking at it and he's making these weird faces and I'm like, oh, your bedside manner is horrible. So he goes, you got to keep a poker face. And he didn't have the poker face and he's looking at the paper and he's looking at us. And he said, I don't even know if I should tell you this information. I asked the doctor, what does all of this mean? This olivoponto, cerebellar atrophy, this OPCA, what does this mean? He says, Carl will see a decline in his health older in life. His father had been diagnosed with the same condition. So the doctor said, don't worry about this for now. Just keep on living. 
As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never, never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you had established me as a strong mountain. So we did what the doctor ordered. We went on with our lives. I was an ordained pastor in the Presbyterian church. I served lots of different congregations in the city. We lived in joy. We served with gladness, knowing that this diagnosis was lying dormant beneath the surface. After a few years, we began to see changes in Carl's health, quick ones. Falls in the drugstore, falls in the bathroom, falls on the job. Lots and lots and lots of falls. Physical therapy appointments where they would ask Carl to do certain things, and the doctor said, I just can't figure out why he is not maintaining or not being able to overcome these things. It was in the beginning of 2012 that we began to see his spiral downward. There was a fall in the basement while Carl was carrying his guitar that landed him in the ER in three weeks out of work. Upon his return to work, Carl now had to use a walker. Three weeks after that stint He fell in January 2012, and then in February, he had another fall, which landed him in the ER again. Weeping may endureth for a night was an understatement. Tears were part of our daily diet. Carl's health scares and fall led to his early and somewhat forced retirement from teaching. I was at a church in the Mount Airy section of Philadelphia that had lost some of its funding. And so they needed to have a pastor who was now bivocational. So I was looking for a second job or a different church altogether. Depression set in for Carl. Discouragement was a friend that just sat at the table every night. You hid your face I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cried, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. With depression and discouragement at our doorstep, God was indeed our helper. The cycle of weeping and joy, God moved us into a direction that we never would have imagined. God called us back home to Wayne Presbyterian Church. Wayne Presbyterian Church was searching for a mission pastor, someone who could lead the charge for a new urban ministry initiative in southwest Philadelphia. I was looking for peace in the midst of this turmoil and this cycle of tears. The door had opened. I applied and there was a mutual yes for me and for the church. So February 1st, 2013, we went back home to our suburban family. Joy comes in the morning, right? 
Part of the reason why we said yes to going back to Wayne is that maybe this will all calm down if we get Carl in a more peaceful environment, if we move out of our house and we get into an apartment that's easy for him to use his wheelchair and his walker, maybe things will calm down. But it didn't. Carl's health conditions began to get worse and fast. Carl's depression began to turn into anger. Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me, O Lord, be my helper. Carl was facing the highest level of physical and emotional brokenness that I had ever seen in the man that I love. And at the same time, God was providing me and our family with one of the most beautiful ministry opportunities I've ever experienced. So as things were breaking down at home or what I call this deep brokenness, this beauty was springing up in our ministry life. And so our church, Wayne Presbyterian Church, they hired this mission pastor because they were trying to pray and ask God, what was the next big thing in our ministry life? And so our church, our big, suburban, white, affluent church, bought another church in the inner city, Code word, poor, black, small congregation, right? So they bought this church in the hood that we now call the commonplace. It wasn't an easy thing to do. The smaller black congregation wanted to be sure that this larger, rich, white congregation wouldn't just buy them and squeeze them out and take over. And so our church said that with Honesty and humility, we want to partner with you and see if God can do something new and alive in this space. So our church had a capital campaign and committed $1.5 million to provide safe, multi-use ministry space for children in southwest Philadelphia. And they asked me to be a part of the plan. Beautiful things happen, happening in ministry, new opportunities and partnership. And at the same time, this brokenness in Carl's body and in his heart and in his spirit kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper. All I kept thinking is, where was that class in seminary to tell me how to do this? Where was the class to tell me that it was going to be this difficult? Friends, here's the truth. Joy in the midst of sorrow is something that you can't learn in class. And if I dare say it, I'm not really sure you can read it in a book. The only way to find joy in the midst of sorrow is to find hope and comfort in God alone. The only way to find joy in the midst of sorrow is to find hope and comfort in God alone. Alone. Joy in sorrow means that, believe it or not, over time, God can actually heal your heart. God can actually take these broken pieces and put you back together again. God can give you courage to face something that is beyond your control. God can give you peace as you breathe your way very slowly and methodically, but breathe your way through any difficult thing that you have ever experienced. One of the comforts 
that I find it happens in our creeds and confessions. As Presbyterians, we're real wordy. We got a lot of words. We got a lot of little documents. We got a lot of little statements. So one of our little statements is this old school jam called the Heidelberg Catechism. And it's my favorite. I'm not going to lie. I'm a little nerdy if you haven't figured that out. Okay. <laughs> but my favorite thing about the Heidelberg Catechism, you know, if you're joining the church or you're professing your statement of faith, you've got to read these questions and they would ask you a question and you would memorize the answer. And so the question is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? What is your only comfort in life and in death? And this is the response. My only comfort in life and in death is that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from the power of the devil. And so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation and therefore by his Holy Spirit. He also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. In other words, right? That's a lot. That's a lot of words. In other words, my only comfort in life and in death is the truth is that I belong to God. You belong to God. It doesn't matter what's happening around you. It doesn't matter what the storm is like. It doesn't matter what's going on. Your only comfort is who you belong to. That's finding joy in the midst of sorrow. Only God knew that Carl's condition would get terribly worse in the three years that we returned to Wayne. Only God knew that we would need that particular ministry context and the spiritual family that we have that continues to grow. Because y'all family now, I'm telling you all my business in Jesus' name. So we're family, in case you didn't figure that out, okay? So only God would know that these were all the things that we would need. Only God would know that, 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 Aisha, you're going to need this new ministry adventure, this beauty in the spiritual realm so that you can make sense of the brokenness to remind you that it's not all bad. Only God would know that. So that is the comfort, is that belonging to God, being held by God, being secure and steadfast in the Lord is our comfort in life and in death, even when death is on your front doorstep. So how do we do it? How do we handle joy in the midst of sorrow? The end of this passage says, you have turned my mourning into dancing. You have taken off my sackcloth and clothed me with joy so that my soul may praise you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. I want to tell you what dancing looks like today. Carl is completely bedridden. After my mother had taken care of him 24-7 for nine months, we placed Carl in a nursing home. It was July 3rd, and he had had a very, very rough couple of weeks. And he said, Aisha, I need you to come downstairs. I said, all right. Came downstairs, Ellington's by the hospital bed. He says, we can't keep doing this this way. You have to put me 
in a nursing home. I said, okay. So that's where he lives now. Even without Carl in our home, there's still joy in the house. And there's also joy in the nursing home facility. So we dance with love and with peace. We dance with acceptance and affirmation of God's plan for our lives. I can tell you right now that Carl has been healed from the anger and the resentment and the jealousy and the hopelessness that comes when people deal with chronic pain. Just the other day, the Whitemans, remember those the folks we live with? Well, those kids are all grown up, and Sean Whiteman said, listen, I, I have to see Carl. It's been so long, and I want to bring my wife and my son. And his sister, Julia, she often comes and brings her son, Carter, and Ellington and Carter think that they're cousins because they don't really get it yet. It's a little, one's a little light, one's a little brown. You know, I don't really get how that works, but, you know. And so we're all in this room, right? Where you would think that it would be hopelessness, where you would think there'd be despair. And little Will, he's like two and a half years old, and he comes up to the bed, and he puts his hand on Carl, and he lifts up the sheet to check on his feet. And so everybody is leaning in and and laughing. And I said, Carl, do you see the baby? And he just smiles. I said, Carl, Julia's pregnant. He said, wow. So Carl's kind of just one word answers, but I'm just like, just even thinking about like, wow, I can't believe we're at this place where there's still joy in this room. There's still hope in this room. I don't have to fear my husband's death anymore because he belongs to God, body and soul, because I belong to God, body and soul, because our family belongs to God, body and soul. I want to tell you also what dancing looks like in ministry, working with urban and suburban partners in Southwest Philly, we're creating safe space where kids are learning to worship and to serve and to be creative and to enjoy God. We have a group of kids, we've got this after-school program called the Commonplace Scholars. And these kids are learning about God, they're learning about art, they're learning about music, they're literally learning about dance, but they're learning that no matter what happens on the block or what happens in the neighborhood, that they belong to God. Another way that we get to dance is supporting this congregation that was in the space, New Spirit Community Church. This church was dying. They couldn't even meet in their own building, but now they're coming back to life. This past summer, we had Vacation Bible School, 200 folk from five different congregations coming together learning about God, worshiping together. Denominations didn't matter. We also support Cornerstone Christian Academy, which is the Christian school that shares our parking lot. Our babies at Cornerstone are learning about Jesus. They're getting a sense of their identity in the world. And so dancing looks like taking risks and trusting what God has done at the corner of 58th and Chester. Because of the power of Jesus. Friends, I leave this to you today. You will be hit with difficult times. Some of you may be in the heart of it or in the eye of the storm right now. 
I'm here as a testimony that you can get through it. I'm here standing as a testimony that you can actually make it with the tears and the pain and the questions and the doubt because you belong to God and God alone. And belonging to God is the only assurance that you need because he will wipe every tear and he will hold you and give you everything that you need. So my encouragement to you is to get ready to dance. Dance this new two-step with God. Dance in a way that makes space for the difficulty and that let the Holy Spirit use it. And you will grow and mature and you will be made new. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we give you thanks. We give you thanks because you walk with us and you talk with us, even in the most difficult of times. Remind us, O Lord, that you are always with us, that there is never a moment that we can escape your power or your presence. So, Lord, we ask for healing. We ask for strength. We ask for hope. Help us to endure. And help us to dance. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We'd also love to have you join us on any Sunday morning as well at the Garnet Valley Middle School at 9.15 or 11 a.m.